Hey Brian, hey listeners, welcome to the 47th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How you doing today, Brian? Hey Dan, it's good to be back. It's summertime. Indeed, it's also no longer circus month. So our last five episodes centered around a circus theme, but we have escaped the big top and are now in a general summer mode. And I asked Brian to join me. I was physically at the beach last week and spiritually on the beach basically since we last recorded because I've been watching as many of the American International Pictures uh, beach party movies that I can, all from the early and mid-60s. Specifically, our, our focus this episode is the 1963 Beach Party, the original one, starring Frankie and Annette, Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. Uh, they're Frankie and Dolores in the movie. Um, it's like a, a classic teen surf beach movie, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so, Brian, had you seen any of these movies before this past week? So I had not sat down and watched any of these previously, but my knowledge of the series came mostly from Frankie and Annette's cameo in Pee-wee's Playhouse, the Christmas special in 1988. Yeah, I remember we talked about that, uh, their appearances there. That's probably what had it fresh in my mind this past year, uh, but I had been meaning to watch these and knew I was going to do it this summer, so I am glad that... We got to watch them together, talk about it. Yeah, certainly I had heard of the genre before and this series specifically. And I knew of it mostly because it's kind of celebrated as like a kitsch milestone. Just that they cranked out these campy teen films with dancing on the beach. Right. And it's really amazing how fast they cranked them out. I got to look at the exact calendar, but it was something like five and two years or five and two and a half years or something like that. I mean, just think about even the it felt like the Star Wars movies came out in pretty rapid succession, but I think they were like two or three years apart each. Imagine you had four or five sequels out, you know, two summers later. That's that's just out of control. Yeah, it's wild. I feel like they must have just kept them in one place and filmed them all like Lord of the Rings or something. But lower budget. <laughs> Much lower budget. Uh, definitely kitschy. That's a term you just used. It's an overall kind of cheap aesthetic to it. It's something that anyone who's listening to this podcast has seen parodied at some point. The kind of dopey beach kids talking. The, the classic visual cue is the surfing scenes alternate between stock footage of surfers and... I guess I don't I don't know exactly what you call the style, but like close up on one of the characters pretending to surf, like wiggling around like they're on a surfboard. But just on the background, you see what is very clearly a projection or like a printout of, of an ocean. And 
like very obviously not surfing. Yeah, it's like very early green screen tech. It might be rear projection. There was a couple ways they would do it, but very artificial looking. Right. And because of my, what might be called familiarity with this genre, having not actually seen any of the movies, I had wanted to make a beach party film for a long time. Uh, I had one specific plot that I had developed over a number of years, and I'm not going to drop it on you yet. I'm going to wait till <laughs> we talk through Beach Party and some of the sequels, and then you can judge whether my concept developed in 2014 uh, fits in amongst its Beach Party brethren. I think it fits pretty well, but y- you can determine that. I'm excited to hear more about it and discuss it. Um, So as mentioned, the Beach Party movie was made by AIP, known for their cheap and fastly produced movies. I think they worked a lot with the Bucket of Blood guy. What's his name again? Corman? Roger Corman. I think they worked a lot with Roger Corman. And, you know, he was known for cranking out these movies, and and this place had, had the same mindset for sure. Right. Roger Corman did a series of movies based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. I would have to look it up. I have a strong suspicion based on things that happen later in this movie, weirdly, that AIP was involved with the Poe films. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I am ready to start talking about the movie. This movie opens with a scene of Dolores, who is played by Annette Funicello and Frankie who's again Frankie Avalon, both kind of generic teen idol types, actors slash singers slash celebrities. Um, Annette Funicello was a mouseketeer in like the first batch of them, and I think she was the most famous of them. And Frankie Avalon, he was just, he was like your generic teen heartthrob. He appeared in stuff and released singles. He, he had, I think, a number one hit with Venus, but we see them riding in this adorable little car, just great early 60s, bright, kitschy, driving to the beach, and they're singing about it. They're, immediately, this is uh, breaking our sense of reality. It's, it's a musical, although the musical numbers are a blend of like diegetic party surf rock jams and the main character is breaking out into song. And there's also, they're like talking to the camera and mugging for the camera as they go. Uh, So you kind of know right away that this is going to be a theatrical, artificial experience here. This song felt like robotic to me. (laughs) It's very fast and, I don't know, mechanical. They're like, going to the beach. No, 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 no. Sand, sand dancing beach boards. I'm not capturing it well, but it's almost like they're rapping and they're like staring straight ahead as they drive this car. So I don't know. I wasn't really feeling emotions (laughs) connected to this song. I think that's, that's interesting and astute. I think none of the numbers really connect, or at least the ones that are sung by the characters are much more than window dressing. It's like, they're very by the numbers in the the surf rock genre by the way like the whole surf fascination is just 
really interesting to me. It lasted for a few years. By far the most noteworthy output of it was the Beach Boys, you know, one of the great rock bands of the second half of the 20th century. But this was like a whole fad almost for a while. And this definitely, if you'll excuse the pun, rode that wave. It's kind of like grunginess in the early 90s. Like the, instead of Seattle grunge, it was like Southern California surf. Just a whole scene. Pretty interesting to me. I kind of wish that that would be a fad again because I, I kind of dig the, the general vibe, even if you're right. It can be just as generic as everything else. Yeah. Overall, I, I tend to like it, especially surf rock music yeah. I'm a fan of. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what are your takes on Annette and Frankie as as leads in a beach party movie? So I'm not nearly as well-versed as you are, Dan. How many <laughs> films did you watch in the last week? You don't have to name them yeah. yet, but... I watched five of them starring these two. Okay. And the characters carry over, so they were invested in continuing this saga. That's a generous way of putting it. It's more like a sitcom from the time where it would just be the same characters appearing for the sake of a shorthand where you kind of knew who this character was. Like there was no continuity or character growth. It was just, hey, Frankie and Annette are back at the beach and here's what's happening this time at the beach. No real sense of like, is it all the same summer? Is it different summers? How have their relationships evolved, etc.? Characters change names. Um, Deadhead becomes Bonehead in between a couple of the movies. I was just thinking of him as Jughead the whole time. I'm going to be real. Most of the movie, I was picturing them being pestered by Pee-wee. <laughs> like, where, when is Pee-wee going to come around the corner and, and yell at them to make more Christmas cards? Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, they were okay overall. Um... Annette has big, poofy 60s hair. Just really horrible. I could tell that work went into her hair. Oh, horrible? No, I thought it was luscious. Okay. Dated, let's say. Like, it's not what... of the time. And also, like, not what you would wear to the beach at all. Like, very made up and pristinely put together. It was distracting me the whole time. Like, she looked like... She was about to record a commercial or something like that. She wasn't hanging out at the beach compared to many of the other beachgoers there. Yeah, everybody else looked kind of like they belonged there. She definitely stood out. So, so my take on them is they're likable and they actually do have good chemistry. Like I really believed that they were in love and in lust with each other. And, um, you know, the thing I didn't buy is, first of all, they both have old faces for their age and they were already also not teens. So like I didn't really buy them as teens. Like Frankie looks like he wants to sell you some car insurance or something like that. Like he, he actually reminds me of a guy I knew in college who was a business major and he was very much like the, I don't know, uh, already in the corporate world type guy. And you know, you can be like a, a teen heartthrob, almost lounge singer type, but to me it didn't scream beach party. It would have been fun to have someone a little more wild and loose. Yeah, that that is an interesting point. One of the sequels, which again, 
it's like the fifth film, but is only 18 months later or whatever. Uh, Don Rickles calls Frankie old. They have like a roast and he's talking about how old Frankie is. I remember that. Yeah. The movies get more and more cartoonish and self-parody-ish as they go. This one, I want to talk a lot about that idea. How much is this already self-parody as we kind of get to what the storyline itself is here in a minute. But um, I think it's good to have them there, though, because they very much are the core of the movie and and people we kind of latch on to. So, you know, some mixed opinions about them as a beach movie star. But overall, I, I enjoyed their presence there. And they are, as mentioned, driving along, singing a song, headed to the beach with the goal of spending all summer surfing. And much more importantly than surfing, like really the main focus of this film is they want a canoodle. They want their alone time. In particular, Frankie wants his alone time. This movie is, I did not realize it before I watched it. It's more of a like code era sex comedy for teens than it is a surf movie. Basically every single line is about how someone wants to hook up with someone with some innuendo here or there. This is one of the smuttiest pre-1970 movies, let alone for kids that I have ever seen. It's so raunchy. My jaw was like dropping. They do everything except explicitly depict sex. And I was thinking about how back when we did um, the Pee Wee's Christmas episode, you were like updating the roster for 2021. Who would the guest stars be? And you said Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens to replace Frankie and Annette. Right. I remember that. Yeah. But I I see now the parallel not being high school musical, but more like American Pie. Interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, in some ways, it's almost like we've gotten more prudish since the 60s. Not a, not across the board, but, like, in some ways. Well, I think the distinction is that this... The reason it felt so dirty to me is because it feels otherwise like a family movie. It's like, I, I would put super bad, for example, as raunchier than this. But, like, now we have the MPAA rating system and, like you know an R-rated sex comedy, what that's going to be. They got away with a lot here, though. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking the whole time, uh, a while back when we discussed specifically the Power Rangers movie, (laughs) uh, one listener discussion came around to Kimberly the Pink Ranger. And uh, one listener commented that we were coming across as horny on main (laughs) and uh dan got a little self-conscious at that review but this entire franchise of beach party films is horny on main like it is inescapable anything that we say about it is that's just the nature of the beast definitely well the first one in particular just through the roof it gets toned back in favor of like cartoonish adventure plots. There's still plenty of innuendos, but really this first one, it's just all out. So as 
Dolores. I'm going to probably call her Annette five times instead of Dolores. And the rest of the movies call her Dee Dee instead of Dolores. She might be re- referred to Dee Dee once or twice in this movie, but definitely Dolores most of the time, which is such, uh, another thing that kind of codes her as an old woman, not a teen. Dolores is just not a teen name as far as I'm yeah, concerned. And why does Frankie get to go by Frankie, but she has to change I don't her know. name? <laughs> I, I think it was to distance her from the Mouseketeer. That's possible. Because literally on the Mouseketeer show, you know, it would start out, they'd all just shout their names. So she'd be Annette. Right. Which they had even incorporated into the Pee Wee opening. And uh, I have a poster from the 1960 Babes in Toyland that Disney made where it's a starring vehicle for her. Right. And on the poster, it just says in big letters, Annette. (laughs) That's an interesting point. Yeah, probably separate the brand a little bit. But they show up at the beach and like Frankie is picking her up, bringing her to the cabin, like basically already disrobing in their newfound summer freedom. But turns out that the whole gang is already there and it's a whole bunch of their buddies, like a lot of them. There's like 20 other people here in this cabin when Frankie was expecting them to be by themselves Um, it's mostly a bunch of nondescript surfer bros, but the one kind of highlight is this really tall fit guy named Deadhead. And Frankie throughout the series frequently calls him Goo Goo, which I think is just like a insulting term. I don't know if we ever get his real name, but he goes by Deadhead and then later movies by Bonehead. And his shtick is he's like a like goofy, always not understanding the situation or saying something stupid, but he, he is pretty good too. I, I, I like this guy a lot. Yeah. So for context, I watched the first movie and the fifth movie and I was glad to see that bonehead carried over. Yeah. And the fifth movie is the one that you watched. That's the only one that he has his own subplot. So then like the next, I don't know, five or 10 minutes of the movie is just everybody surfing and beach hanging. And this is where we get the the surfing footage I mentioned with like the rear projection effect looks super fake and just so much horniness. Like everybody's horny AF right now. There's lots of massaging of suntan lotion onto bikini bods and lots of waxing down the boys, stiff wooden boards, you know, riding those wet waves in and out and in and out again. Uh, You know, there's a lot you can read into the uh, what's going on here at the beach. And I got to say, you know, I haven't been a horny teen for a long time, but I was overall vibing with this. Like I liked the the people hanging out and actually promise of the premise right away. This is a beach party. Oh my gosh. That's what I, those were going to be my words. (laughs) How'd you know? I was going to say promise of the premise. This movie is like 80% bikini babes, Uh, even more so actually in the sequels. There are, there are a fair number of one pieces in this first film. The story proper kicks off shortly afterwards when we meet the bearded Dr. Sutwell. So he's a older gentleman, a professor And we meet him peeping through this like spyglass recording device that was like, I don't know, straight out of a 1960s spy movie or something like that. 
recording these teens and immediately the, the whole joke of this character is that he he's acting in a way that a creepy old man would. But in fact, he is attempting to document what these kids are doing. And like he's a professor, like as if he were observing like a, a pack of animals or a herd of animals or something. And he talks about like what they're doing in very academic terms. Um, it's a very interesting premise. It's like you're already commenting on the genre that you have like just created, basically. Yeah, on Amazon Prime, the description of this movie was like, an anthropologist studies teen sex. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that, that's the logline for this film? Yeah, he's the first credit. Beach party? Believe it or not, Dr. Setwell, played by Bob Cummings, he's actually the first listed actor, first credited actor. Wow. I mean, that summary doesn't really lie. <laughs> That's what we get a lot of. Indeed. With Sutwell is his assistant, Marianne. And another kind of core joke here is she's very obviously in love and in lust with Dr. Sutwell and spends the whole movie making cheesy one-liners towards him. And he is some combination of oblivious and ignoring those affections because he's like this asexual intellectually curious character for most of the film and i'm glad because if he was anything other than that this whole premise would have been extremely creepy it still kind of is but it would have been much worse if they had done really anything else with dr sutwell and to paint a picture of what this guy looks like i mean he's got the big glasses but he also has this big robust red beard which is important to the plot (laughs) <laughs> and he has like a little Kangol cap that he's wearing some of the time, you know, like a, a like an old man hat is what I would think of it as. Right. It's actually hard to tell how old he is because of that huge beard. I think he was in his early 50s when this was filmed. The soundtrack to all of this is Dick Dale and the Deltones. So this is one of the vintage surf rock bands from this era. And Dick Dale in particular, he's kind of one of the faces of surf rock. And he's in a couple of the movies. I don't think he's in all of them. But I love this this guy. I love this the sound of his band. And they're just rocking out to surf rock this whole time. It's, it's pretty fun. It made me think, of course, of one of my favorite movies, That Thing You Do, where they have a spoof of these movies. And the band in that film, The Wonders, they get to play the surf rock band and the band name is Cap'n Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters, which is just a great fake band name. I, I love that. And I was thinking of Dick Dale and the Deltones and imagining them as Cap'n Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Yeah, very similar spirit where they've just stuck a real music group in the background of this party in this club. The kind of interpersonal drama going on with the teens here is... Dolores is kind of facing that common romantic challenge of young women where she wants to both deepen her relationship with the very thirsty Frankie, but she also doesn't want to come across as as cheap or easy. So she keeps doing things to kind of create some artificial distance and cause some jealousy in Frankie. And of course, Frankie responds by doing things that will just make... Dolores just as jealous and that's really the main plot of all of the movies at least between Frankie and Dolores every single one of the beach movies is 
one of them wants to make the other one jealous. There's a cycle of them making each other jealous with one or another side character. And then in the end, they make up and kiss. So we see her kind of flirting with other guys. And eventually Frankie's going to meet this, this bartender waitress lady. And that's actually a transition to our next setting, not the beach, but the other kind of main place that we hang out in this movie, which is a club called Big Daddy's. And it's actually based off of, I think it's called Frankenstein Cafe, a, a real place inspired this that was like the surfer hub at the time. Uh, makes me wish I could have gone to that real cafe at some point because this is a, a swinging place. Here's some of the things we see at, at Big Daddy's. So it's it's all led by this wacky MC guy named Cappy. He's got this goofy, like, I think it's supposed to be fake Chinese oriental dragon hat. Yeah, I love this thing. He's got, he's got like the front of a Chinese dragon s- strapped onto the back of his head, and he can somehow trigger it to make it talk. He can move the mouth by like pulling a little lever. And so he can turn his back to the crowd and make his dragon hat say things. And I, I want to see if I can recreate this. <laughs> Very cool costume element. Yeah. And he starts the scene by like reciting beatnik poetry. This is an interesting moment in the early 60s when it seems like we have some 50s subcultures bleeding over into some 60s subcultures so this club is the mixing pot between beatniks and like james dean bikers with hippies and surfers from the 60s right definitely the beatniks are these women in like black turtlenecks and black pants and they're like very still and meditative and there's some jokes on like kind of how how still they are throughout the the movie. Very zen. A couple other things at this club. We have more of Dick Dale and the Deltones. I think actually my favorite rendition of their surf rock. And I, I love this shot of Dick Dale just kind of coolly hanging over a balcony as and kind of swinging along as the band performs. I was really vibing with with Dick Dale at this point. We also see Big Daddy himself. He's a mysterious shrouded man who is said to always be sleeping. And we don't see his face. He's kind of covered in a hat. He's sitting in a chair, leaning down. Well, Cappy says that Big Daddy is someday going to deliver the word like he's a guru (laughs) and that Cappy early on when he was forming the club used this as an excuse to kind of draw people in. Oh, come and receive the message from this prophet. And and one day he's going to address us all and speak. We also have, as I mentioned, a curvy foreign exotic waitress named Ava who catches Frankie's eye, comes out and dances with him for a bit and is going to be kind of one of the prongs of this love quadrangle of jealousy that we will have throughout the the film. We also have a young woman named Candy, and she appears in three or four of the movies. And she's always doing this crazy swinging hip dance, but her most distinctive thing is she always has this one dress. I don't even know how you describe it. It's like 
layered with these like frills that swing when you're dancing around. So it's very eye popping when she's dancing. It's like she- it's like a 20s flapper dress. It didn't scream 60s to me. So the, this woman, Candy, the, the this actress's name is actually Candy Johnson. And she went on to have a career basically performing, doing the exact thing that she is doing in this film. It was like a very signature thing for her. And the song I Want Candy was actually written about her, believe it or not. Wow. At this point, we're basically at the half hour mark. So this movie is about 100 minutes long. It's about an hour and 40 minutes long. So we're nearly a third of the way through. I just want to stay where my head was at this point. And that is that I was absolutely just vibing with this movie. Just here for all of it. The the goofy smuttiness, the music, the surfing, the teens, the wacky characters, the slang. Just everything that I wanted it to be at this point so far a huge smile on my face things turn a little bit more towards an attempt at a story with like more emphasis on the characters who aren't the teens and less emphasis on the partying as it goes here but for me this was like kind of the peak of the film is this this jam out at at big daddy's club yeah i was along for the ride so so shortly hereafter we get the aforementioned, I think Brian mentioned them, the, the biker gang comes in. And this is a biker gang called the Rats, R-A-T-Z. And they're led by this guy who must be in his 40s uh, named Eric Von Zipper. He's kind of a bully character, kind of like a bad boy, but it was so weird to me that he was cast that much older because he just did not fit in with everything else that was going on here. What did you think of this Eric Von Zipper character? I mean, you hit it on the head. (laughs) He's, he, I'm trying to think of an analogy that's going to get picked up by anybody. He looks a little bit like Squiggy from the Laverne and Shirley show. He's just like a greasy little guy. And yeah, notably older than anybody else, who at least among the teen characters. And older than it seems like he should be, based on the things that he's doing. Right. But uh, he sticks around, too. <laughs> he was in movie number five also. Yeah, he he is basically in in alternating ones. So he's he skips at least one of them, maybe two of them. But yeah, he hangs around, too. Um, do you remember the name of the gang in American Graffiti? It was like the shepherds. Were they the scorpions? I don't think it was the scorpions. It might be. I'm going to look it up now. Oh, the pharaohs. Sorry. It was the pharaohs. That's what it is. The pharaohs. That's right. I knew it was something in the Egyptian desert. <laughs> These guys are kind of like the pharaohs, but they're very much a biking gang. And there's this one joke that kept recurring that I think the writers and actors thought it was funnier than I thought it was, which is that they mispronounce cycling they call it sickling and i don't i don't know what they were going for with that but they just kind of show up they're very much like the cartoonish version of a biker gang but like not threatening whatsoever i i kind of like that the dudes in the biker gang had the rats jackets and the girls had mice jackets oh yeah that was good yeah they're like the pink ladies to the thunderbirds or whatever in greece yeah something like that right 
So Eric Von Zipper puts the moves on Dolores. Just, hey, here's a pretty girl. I'm the big, tough biker guy. I get what I want, and this is the girl I want. And Sutwell, the professor who is at the club observing, he comes and he intervenes, and he's got this this move. So part of his shtick is he is like well-traveled and has studied Aborigine tribes, and it's kind of like... I don't know if it's intending to be, hey, look how post-colonial, post-imperial this guy is. Isn't it ridiculous how we think this way? I think it was still just playing that fairly straight-faced at this point, which now like he comes across as like super retrograde and super racist, like how he uh, talks about all these foreign cultures he's been to. But he, he kind of has like all of this garb and these things he's learned from all these places in the world he's visited and one of them is that he has like this trick i forget where he says it's from but he pokes you in the temple in the side of your head and it paralyzes you yeah he says himalayan <laughs> which i've never heard that pronunciation before it's from the himalayas i, I would say himalayan but he says it's himalayan time suspension which uh he uses on Zipper here, the biker, and he freezes him cartoonishly in place. And uh, soon after, Cappy comes along and says, hey, get this guy out of here. And the fellow gang members say, we can't. He's in time suspenders. <laughs> and that was one laugh out loud moment that the biker gang gave me. Yeah, there, the wordplay comes at you pretty fast sometimes in this movie. And even if 20% of it hits... There's still a couple of good good lines here, but I, I like this time suspension because he's very clearly just like holding still and you could like see him moving just a little bit as he like tenses his muscles and stuff. I, I thought it was pretty funny. And and so then we hear we hit kind of the main conflict of the film here because as soon as Sutwell saves Dolores, she is now smitten with him and is gonna use him to incite jealousy in Frankie. And that honestly <laughs> lines up the plot for the rest of the movie. It's just escalating the plot. So it's Dr. Setwell wants to use Dolores in his study. For him, it's a very academic thing. There's one pun that just gets dragged out so much, and it's first contact. So for him, first contact is like he is observing a tribe, and he's made contact as a researcher with someone in the tribe and told him that he told her, that he's a researcher, but for her, first contact is a sexual phrase, not a scientific observational phrase. And and just that kind of dynamic escalated and repeated throughout the rest of the movie. It's actually like a weirdly postmodern deconstruction of the genre. It's like this guy, his his thing is that he is talking about in very dry academic terms the smuttiness of teens when that is ostensibly the point of this movie is to be like a PG rated teen sex surfing comedy. I thought it was pretty clever actually. And they, they get some fun out of it. Like one thing that always got me was when Sutwell would try to understand and remember the goofy surf slang. One is hooting being good. And just the way that he says that it, it got me every time. I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Annette says something like, oh, it's a hooting time. Like, great. And 
loud and incredible. But then, yeah, the professor's like, oh, hooting, hooting. Just any time the rest of the movie, something good happens, he's like, oh, hooting, hooting. There's some other ones he gets in there, too. I'm trying to, I don't even remember what they are, but basically every piece of surface slang gets, gets made fun of by Sutwell at some point. So They make the joke at one point where they bring up the baseball sex analogy that has its own Wikipedia article, but, you know, running the bases, first base, second base, what have you. And the professor says that he stays at home and watches the game. <laughs> Something along those lines. Right. So this is all new to him. When Frankie sees Sutwell and Dolores together, he ramps up his flirtations with Ava, but also refuses to go too far with her. Like it's clear that he's he's still holding out for Dolores, just trying to get her back. At some point, after much cajoling from Dolores and just really tons of comments on the beard from various parties... Sutwell is talked into shaving his beard, and the idea is he, he's going to immerse himself in the surf culture he is observing, and so he's going to try to make himself more like the surfers and fit in. And so since none of the surfers have beards, he, he's convinced to shave his off, and there's this big reveal when he turns around and you see him shaved, and he goes from looking kind of goofy to like a Hollywood actor all of a sudden. But really, I was I was definitely enjoying all of the beard talk. Lots of beard slang. The one that comes up a lot is pig bristles. I'd never heard that one before. Also, just the constant implication that having a beard made him very academic and square, which does not jibe with me. I don't think of beards as being particularly nerdy or, or square or unhip. Well, beard history is very interesting. Uh, they've come in and out of vogue throughout history. I mean, like the ancient Romans kind of introduced the idea of being clean shaven, and that's the way it was good to look. But, you know, it's come in and out. Like, up before Abraham Lincoln, no presidents with beards. Then you get a wave of presidents with beards, and then it kind of trickles off to mustaches, and then it stops. You know, they... It's been a long time since there was a bearded president. I think it needs to come back. But, I mean, then, you know, it's it kind of has come back with hipsters. But then, if you look at, say, the 2012 Academy Awards, you've got a bunch of actors with beards. Like, George Clooney had a beard. Uh, Brian Cranston had a beard. Uh, Keanu Reeves has a beard now, which is not the best beard, but he's got one. <laughs> and so, yeah... I think a lot about beards. I've sported a beard for most of my adult life. I I think I feel most comfortable and myself with one. But this part of the movie spoke to me because I just recently shaved it off to take a slate of dating app pictures uh, to try something new. So I was seeing a little of myself in this professor character. Yeah, you understood the struggle. Right. Another thing that happens here is the rats, led by Eric Von Zipper, are determined to get revenge against Sutwell for humiliating him at Big Daddy's and kind of winning that fight against him with the, what was the pronunciation? Hamalian time suspension. Exactly, yeah. So 
they're kind of looking around trying to find him, but constantly uh, befuddled in some way or another. One of the more prominent set pieces of the film is Sutwell takes Dolores on a stunt airplane flight. I forget. There's like some throwaway wordplay that sets this up. Something about you make me feel so high or something. I don't even remember what it was, but for some reason they are flying in an airplane and uh, there's a joke about Dolores feeling sick. Like they green tint her on the, the screen this was a moment where it stuck out to me that Annette is not really doing too much acting here. She's just kind of being her teen idol self because she, other than the green tint, she did not come across as sick at all in in this scene. But I thought this was an interesting scene for the film. Yeah, uh, maybe not, but this character trait was something that came back in later movies too. And the only other one that I watched, number five, they did this same thing. That one features planes even more prominently, but at one point she gets airsick again and they do this like horse of a different color Wizard of Oz effect where they light her in this changing hue. Right. Uh, I was wondering, Dan, have you ever been up in a little tiny plane like this? Not this small. When I went to the Bahamas a few years ago, we actually stayed at one of the smaller Bahama Islands. And so the way that that works is... You fly to the main, I think it's called, I forget, Nassau or something, the main Bahama Island. And then you take a small plane to the island you're going to. And so it was like a 10-person plane. Very surreal, very rickety and stuff. Kind of scarier than a big jet plane, which never feels anything less than very sturdy. But I could definitely relate a little bit to Dolores being uneasy up there. Um, what about you? Have you ridden in a small plane before? Yeah, once when I was at college at William & Mary, we had this film assignment where we were supposed to go make a documentary that was a portrait of a place and essentially just take a bunch of pictures and short clips in some location. And my partner and I picked the Williamsburg Airport, which is just a little airstrip for private pilots pretty much and so we were just kind of walking around the airstrip taking pictures and somebody came up and said hey what are you doing and i thought the jig was up i thought we were going to get like taken to guantanamo or something for taking pictures at an airstrip but no he was friendly and was a pilot there who had a private plane and said hey do you guys want to ride in my plane and, uh, you know, I, I suppose this could have gone south, uh, <laughs> but we actually did ride in his little plane, which was like a four-seater. It, it might have helped that my partner was a girl, but we flew just over the town. We even flew over my college dorm. Oh, wow. And so it, it was pretty cool. And, like, you could see everything down on the ground. That's, so, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I recommend it. It was memorable. It just feels different from other flying. It really does feel more like you're just in a chair in the sky with everything, the whole universe of sky around you, air flowing and stuff. And I don't know. I definitely recommend, unless you're particularly squeamish about flying, everybody try to fly in a small plane at some point. That makes me think of um, one time at band camp, my friend Joey, we were just standing outside one of the 
like dormitories that we would stay in uh, at this sleepaway camp. And way up high in the sky, a plane went over, just like a standard commercial jetliner. And he pointed up at it and he said, there's people up there. (laughs) And, you know, we've gotten to a place now where we are kind of blasé about airplanes just always being up in the sky. But you really need to stop sometimes and think when you see one, there's people up there. Yeah, there's an amazing Louis C.K. bit. I know he is out of style right now for many of the problematic things he did, but from before then, when he was on David Letterman, it's a bit called Everything's Amazing and No One's Happy, and the thrust of it is basically that. He talks about exactly what we just talked about, how blasé we are about air travel and other things too, and it's one of my most rewatched comedy sketches. I might have to send it to you, Brian, because... Definitely drilled that thought home for me. So at some point after this airplane trip, Sutwell finally seems to be getting wise to the fact that Dolores is not simply a fellow scientist assisting in the research, but is demonstrating romantic feelings towards him. And he does not reciprocate that. And so he stages this thing where when Dolores is going to come find him, he basically kisses Marianne, his assistant, who we know all along has had feelings for the professor this whole time. And of course, when Dolores sees it, she gets upset and says adios to the professor. It storms out. And in a semi-coherent manner, everything kind of comes together, all the plot threads here, because Frankie somehow ends up going to yell at the professor and sees that he and his peers are being studied And so they chase after the professor and also the rats chase after the professor and they all end up back at Big Daddy's. I'm glad the climax was at Big Daddy's is a a good spot for it. And not the only one of these movies that is just going to end with a big brawl inside a club. And the, the thing I loved about this one here, there's a couple things I loved about this kind of climactic fight here. First is naturally a pie fight. It's not just a, a fisticuffs fight. They have freshly baked pies, so pies are flying left and right, smacking people in the face. And there's also this surreality to it because Sutwell keeps using his freeze time suspension technique to make rats like freeze mid-punch against each other. And so characters are freezing one after the other. And so like this fight scene is actually going less chaotic as time goes because people are like stopped still like a picture or something. It's a very interesting and kind of creative fight. I mean, I wouldn't put it up as high action or anything like that, like a a elite action movie, but I kind of enjoyed this little bit of comic insanity here. For some reason, it was pretty common in the sixties for movies to end with big pie fights. (laughs) It was actually the original scripted ending of Dr. Strangelove. And then at some point, Stanley Kubrick thought, well, well, wait a minute. This isn't really what we're going for here. The The ending from Beach Party doesn't fit here in this Cold War satire. But they had the pies ready to go on the set. That's pretty funny. I did not know that. I actually haven't seen Dr. Strangelove. That is one I, I definitely want to catch up with. What did you think of this fight? It was pretty silly. There's a lot of silliness and... Most of it seems to happen when this biker gang is involved. They do try different things with this freezing power. 
Uh, I think at the climactic moment, the biker might freeze himself. Like, uh, I don't know. It, it, I think it's after the battle. It's like at the very end when he, they're like making a truce and the biker says, hey, professor, you got to teach me how to do that. And then he accidentally does it to himself. Right. That was kind of funny, too. Yeah. Deadhead gets frozen real bad, and he gets like a real goofy cross-eyed look when it happens. In one of the sequels, somebody gets like the power to do this at a distance and can freeze people without the physical contact. Right. I remember that. So after this fight, of course, Frankie and Dolores kiss and make up, and we finally get the reveal at Big Daddy's Club. He wakes up and he says his word and Big Daddy is none other than Vincent Price. And he says, do you have a good Vincent Price voice? It's going to be better than mine, Brian. Bring me my pendulum, kiddies. I feel like swinging. Yeah, that, that's his line. Or just think about the rap. Think about the rap in Thriller. That's Vincent Price. Oh, yeah, that's good, too. Yeah. And I got to say, I was not expecting this to be Vincent Price. I Because the whole movie, he's sitting like the sleeping Mexican, like he's got the hat over his head and he's like got his face on his knees and uh, you don't see who it is. And so they're building it up as a reveal. Who is this going to be under the hat? Yeah. A few of these have cameos from people who, some of them are kind of surprise cameos. Peter Laurie appears in one Buster Keaton. He's not a surprise cameo, but he similarly is just like a, Hey, here's an older famous person in our movie for a couple of scenes and let's enjoy that. That's kind of a recurring thing throughout these movies. So I think Vincent Price is the best of them, but I enjoyed just his delivery of bring me my pendulum kitties. I feel like swinging was, was pretty excellent. And this is one of the reasons I think AIP must've been involved with the Roger Corman Poe films, because obviously pendulum Pit in the Pendulum was one of them. And Peter Lorre was in these films with Vincent Price. So mm. if you're very astute, perhaps you can call us out if that's incorrect. But I, I think they must have been involved. Certainly AIP and producer Samuel Z. Arkoff made the abominable Dr. Fibes films, mm. which are some of my favorite, where Vincent Price is a serial killer with a checklist a la Seven, where he's just got these theatrical murders that he's jotting off on a list as he goes. That sounds fun, yeah. So it's it's almost like a cross-studio promotion for other stuff that they do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is definitely... He even says... I wasn't sure exactly what the title of the movie was, but I could tell this was a promo for a specific movie because he says pit he says it's the pits or something like that and then he says bring you my, bring me my pendulum so if there's a movie called what did you say it was pit and the pendulum right then i would guess that this was very intentionally a promo for that the movie wraps with everybody pairing off of course we had frankie and dolores making up marianne and sutwell finally get together the the professor and his assistant and lastly ava who frankie had been flirting with throughout much of the film Runs off with Eric Von Zipper, apparently wooed by his bad boy ways. And then we cut to the credits. 
we get to revisit some of the beach partying and the credit sequence. We also get a lot of dancing from Candy. Yeah, there's it's like a big dramatic and introducing Candy Johnson and she's dancing different angles of her doing her her swinging what did you call it a flapper dress dance? That's what I thought of it as with the fringes. So once she appears pretty prominently in a couple of the sequels, there's a segment early on in the the kind of the first 15 minutes when they're all just partying on the beach where it shows like various pretty girls and then cuts to stock footage of the surfers crashing and falling over. It's like a gag that the surfers are distracted by the pretty women on the beach. But the later movies amp this up and specifically give Candy the power to do her dance and it like makes people fall over and fly backwards and stuff, which, which is a pretty funny twist on, on what we get here. So, But that wraps Beach Party, 1963. We got through it, Brian. Yeah, the saga was far from over. <laughs> Briefly, I'll talk about the sequels here. The theme from the sequels is they get more and more cartoonish in their plotting and their logic and less and less beachy, Uh, or at least the surfing footage and the partying on the beach is less prominent. It all happens on the beach with the the exception of a couple of the spinoffs, but um, becomes more about like the biker gangs and whatever other strange guest or group has shown up for the the movie, almost like a, a TV episode or something like that. The first sequel is called Muscle Beach Party. Uh, this might have been the worst of the ones that I watched. Definitely a step down. Definitely less of like a playing up of the almost satire of the the horniness of the teens. But you have an Italian contessa and her kind of manager. That My favorite bit from this one is the business manager is continually trying to pull off deals in between segments. And one is he calls an Italian real estate agent and says, buy Sicily. Oh, never mind. Just buy half of Sicily. You can let Sinatra keep the other half or something like that. So lots of goofy stuff like that. The second one also introduces Don Rickles, who is a mainstay of the rest of the series. Um, You may know him as kind of a comedian personality. He appeared on talk shows a lot and specials and stuff. You may know him as Mr. Potato Head in the Toy Story films. That too. In this one, he leads a group of bronzed bodybuilders who are just do nothing but stand there and flex and let the camera ogle at them. And like various characters, including some male characters, are just really fascinated by these bodybuilders and definitely adds some homoerotic undertones to the the Beach Party series. And then, the as I mentioned, the big cameo reveal at the end is Peter Laurie for that one. Uh, the third one is called Bikini Beach. I, I like this one a lot more than Muscle Beach Party. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's not just because of the bikinis, but this one, it's really starting to get kind of goofy and cartoony. The main plot here is it doesn't really make any sense, but this real estate developer is trying to convince people that teens are bad for the area. So he wants to make the teens look stupid. 
so that real estate people will sell him some land. It's very convoluted, doesn't make any sense. But the gist of it is the way that he's going to make them feel stupid is he has this chimpanzee, which is very clearly just a person in a not very good chimp suit, like your TV show level chimp suit, Brian. No offense. No, you're right. <laughs> you Dan was sending me screenshots and this fake chimp was pretty creepy. But the chimp gets to do stuff like surf and handstands on the surfboard. And later, he there's a big drag racing subplot on this one. And the chimp wins a drag race, which is pretty funny. The other gimmick of Bikini Beach is the antagonist is a British caricature of basically the Beatles named Potato Bug. And he's also played by Frankie Avalon in bad makeup, bad fake teeth, doing just the cheesiest, corniest of fake British accents. But that adds some camp value to it, too. So then the numbering becomes a little bit more ambiguous here because we start to get spinoffs. There was a spinoff called Pajama Party. I did not get to catch up with that one, but I think it's basically the tone of Beach Party, but slumber party themed i guess i don't know less sand yeah there's a later ski party one which is the same premise but at a ski resort instead of at a beach but the next one in what i would consider the main line of the series which are the ones directed by william asher starring frankie avalon and annette funicello as frankie and dolores is the one that you watched as well, and that's Beach Blanket Bingo. And um, of the sequels, this, I think, was easily the best of the sequels that I saw. Very cartoony and goofy. Just lots of madcap insanity. For some reason, this is the one that is always pointed to as, like, the iconic entry in the Beach Party series. This is the title I knew before going in was Beach Blanket Bingo. Yeah. So the first Beach Party... It has some of the, it has quite a bit of the goofy adventure, crazy things happen near the beach vibe. But a lot of it is also just, you know, teens partying. And the teens partying become less and less prominent. The beach blanket bingo does have a little bit more of that than the previous two did. But you're right, this one is pretty iconic. If you look on Letterboxd, it's the most watched of the series. This one has skydiving. It has a mermaid romance. It ends with like a classic silent melodrama sawmill chase with like a woman attached to a log that's racing towards the the big comically oversized saw blade. Just lots of goofiness. And in the midst of this, Frankie and Dee Dee are making each other jealous with other teen characters. But this is, I think, the second movie Featuring skydiving. I know we already talked about Power Rangers. Did we talk about it in the skydiving context? I can't remember. No, not yet. Okay. So we obviously, the Power Rangers movie featured a prominent skydiving scene at the beginning of this movie. So Beach Blanket Bingo also has a lot of skydiving to it, which brought me back to the Power Ranger days. Same. What did you think of Beach Blanket Bingo versus Beach Party? I think it's fairly consistent. I mean, we get pretty much all the same actors still there. Remember that this was less than two years later, and it delivers, in a sense, more of the same. It's slightly less raunchy, I thought. Definitely. Like, that's downplayed a little bit. Although, certainly, 
Many a bikini is on display here. There's a character named Sugar Kane, who's like a pop star. And there was a lot of her on display. Uh, one thing that we haven't said yet is um, Dee Dee, Annette, is more modestly dressed than a lot of the women in these movies. Uh, I think she must have that in her contract or something. Or, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, that's part of her character is that she's a little more prim than the rest. Right up to the haircut. Yeah, for sure. Right. But, you know, it could be like a late season Daenerys type thing. It's like once you have enough credentials, you don't have to be as skimpy anymore. (laughs) Interesting comparison. I didn't know we would be comparing Game of Thrones to Beach Party, but there you go. There are a couple other in the the main AIP beach party line. The next one, which I didn't watch, is called How to Stuff a Wild Bikini. That one is the one that is known for writing Frankie out. He like he becomes a he joins the military. I don't remember exactly what it is. Maybe it's National Guard or something. And there's a new love interest for Annette. There's also the last one, the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. And at that point, Annette was gone, and William Asher, the director, was gone, and Frankie was gone. So I think they introduced some light horror elements to that one. I was intrigued by that concept, but everything I read was that it didn't match the entertainment value of the earlier ones, so I I didn't get to pull that one up yet. What I think is funny about that one, again, I've not seen the movie in its entirety, but that title jumps out at you. That she's got an invisible (laughs) bikini. Well, what could that mean? Uh, And you assume, perhaps, transparent. You know, you can't see it. So, oh, tantalizing, titillating. But they do this weird effect where it's like the bikini is made of green screen. So, it's not that you don't see the bikini. It's that you see the background. It's just like a a booby-shaped cutout where there just is nothing. There's empty space, (laughs) hovering head and shoulders, navel hovering above legs. So it's like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak, but just for the chest region. Exactly. That's funny. So it's, it's rather humorous. There's like a deep well. They, a lot of production companies churned out surf beach movies, beach party movies. With various twists, horror ones, sci-fi ones, uh, different sets of stars, more musical focused. It's a deep well. I spent I spent about a half hour reading about them last night, and I would say I'm not quite uh, in love with this series enough to make me want to go and find the spinoffs too. But if it were your thing, then for sure there are a lot of them out there. Uh, I think five movies is enough to call yourself a devotee, Dan. I'll let you have that. (laughs) The last one I wanted to talk about is in 1987, Annette and Frankie got back together to make a, like, throwback slash parody revival movie called Back to the Beach. I, I also watched this one. It's got one of the wackiest, most 80s extreme posters you'll ever see which had me primed for a good time and indeed it is a pretty good time it like tries to pay homage to it it has lots of goofy references to the original series like there's randomly a pajama party for no obvious reason 
a reference to the spinoff of the pajama party. One thing that Frankie does in a bunch of them is he does to call someone square. He like draws the shape of a square with his index fingers. And he does that in this movie. There's a couple other, Oh, there's a, they jokingly say dead head, like calling back to that character, even though that, that actor isn't there, but they play a married couple with two kids and the boy kid is the narrator and he is just the worst. He is like Jansen. He's worse than Jansen. He's like actively annoying. He's so bad. Uh, he didn't have a career. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. This kid actor named, I don't even need to say his name. I don't want to throw shade on some guy who acted in a movie in the eighties, but, um, wow. <laughs> so worse than Jansen, but Jansen is going to stay our <laughs> standard bearer. For bad child actors, because you don't want to throw shade on a person who played a role in one movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm inconsistent there. I don't know. There's a lot of fun cameos in this. So Lori Laughlin, from, I think of as from Full House, but is, was in some other stuff. She plays the daughter of Annette and Frankie. And she is basically the new Annette character, or the new Dolores character. And she actually fits the bill pretty well because she has a certain primness to her that matches what Annette had. Although they don't hesitate to give her like the smallest swimsuits of anyone on on screen. And they have uh, Gilligan's Island cameos. Is it Alan Hale Jr.? Is that the name? Yeah, he played the he played the skipper. Yeah, I think that was his last appearance. So Bob Denver is there too, and Alan Hale Jr. appears in like the last scene. So that marks the third appearance of an Alan Hale in our podcast so far. Alan Hale Sr., of course, being in It Happened One Night. Alan Hale Jr. as a young man appearing in It Happened on Fifth Avenue. And now here is Alan Hale Jr. at the end of his career in a movie where it didn't happen. <laughs> it Instead, it was Back to the Beach. Yeah. So the problem with... Back to the beach is they forgot to make it good. Like they they have the the throwback, the nostalgia, but the movie itself is just not very well put together. The biggest problem is Frankie Avalon did not age into more charisma. He aged into an even kind of smarmier car salesman vibe that is not what you need to carry a movie. Annette was like 45 and she's absolutely beautiful in the movie. I was like, I would have guessed she was a lot younger than that, but the, the whole movie, I think it's a really interesting exercise, but it's, it's brought up um, a notch with one thing in particular. And that is that Pee Wee appears. He just hops in out of nowhere and he sings surfing bird, which you may know as the bird is the word song. And it's like, Four minutes long, and it's easily the best part of the movie. Everybody's dancing. Pee Wee's doing Pee Wee things in his voice, and it's it's great. I, I loved that five minute segment of the film. Oh my gosh, this is perfect. I didn't know that, but what I was just about to say was that this movie came out one year before the Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special. I bet they stuck up a friendship there, right? Uh, and it's probably what put Frankie and Annette, you know, back in the public consciousness. Uh, I mean, Pee Wee is all about throwbacks to more vintage pop culture figures. Yeah. So it was a natural fit, I think, to have them end up together. Yeah. So 
I liked that. I liked that they tried a revival. I wish they had made it a little more entertaining, but glad to get a, a Pee-wee spotting in it for sure. And now that you've had that quick blow by blow of the real deal beach party franchise and its spinoffs, I wanted to share the treatment that I did for my concept beach party film, which I thought was from maybe 2016 or 2017. I actually wrote this back in 2014. So you know, years before I had sat down and watched one of these films, I just knew about them obliquely through other pop culture references. Uh, but I think it works. So this is just a little blurb that I typed in a list of uh, story ideas as pitches. And it's called Lobster Men at Beach Party Point. A fusion of 50s alien flick and 60s beach party film. A team of spacefaring, lobster-like humanoids lands on Earth. Its beach is apparently ripe for colonizing. But the beach is already home to a groovy gang of hip and happening beach bum teenagers. Things come to a heated head as Lobster Commander Crabicus, or Crustacea, squares off with the teen's illustrious, Elvis-like leader, King Kahuna. When a dance battle breaks out for the fate of the beach, who will reign supreme? So uh, having watched a couple of these now, I, I think it sort of fits. Like this could blend in in some ways. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So ju just for a little bit on the saga, I've said a couple of times this episode that went into creating this film because I did eventually make it. Uh, but I do a speed filmmaking contest in January every year. And I wanted to make this idea and i pitched it to the team multiple years in a row of course nobody wanted to make a beach movie in january <laughs> it's a little thermally restrictive of course the other problem as uh, we've kind of made clear you got to know a lot of women to make an effective beach party film uh unless it's muscle beach maybe <laughs> i didn't watch that one so that was a bit of a hurdle i will say I was finally able to do an adaptation of this story idea as a Gauntly episode in May 2019. And I actually got a woman into the lobster costume. So in a way, I think that's perhaps more of an achievement. <laughs> a very proud day for me. Years in the making. I'm patting myself on the back right now. Oh, congrats. I'd like to watch it. I have a list up here of some beach party genre movies and some of them are like sci-fi alien themed that you should look up and see how closely it matches your vision. There's one called The Beach Girls and the Monster that is streaming on Tubi. And there's also one called The Horror of Party Beach, which has goofy looking aliens or monsters or something on the cover. So there you go. Before we get to our signature section, Is It Good?, just a couple of good things and not so good things that we might not have talked about yet. I've hit most of mine. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is I really like the look of this movie. The colors are very highly saturated, bright. I think we've talked about this in a couple of things, but the one that I thought of was High School Musical 2, where you got like the bright pinks and the light blues of like a chlorine. Just very summery to look at. Yeah, I loved the color scheme, especially in the second one I watched, um, the Beach Blanket Bingo. 
I was a big fan of the 60s show Get Smart, which is a knockoff of James Bond spy movies, like lower budget James Bond. And these kind of felt like that. Yeah. Just everybody's rocking the 60s fashions. An- another thing I liked is, so one of the my favorite film critics who I've mentioned a few times is named Tim Brayton. He also co-hosts a podcast called Alternate Ending, which was one of the inspirations for this podcast. He actually has really thoughtful reviews of every movie in the Beach Party series, like probably more thoughtful than they actually deserve, to be honest. One theory that he has that I really like is that teen movies in particular make great time capsules of their era because you're so directly pitching to the values of young people at that time that like you're getting like a photograph of what that is. And I think that carries through here. This is like just on the verge of the summer of love, sexual awakening. Like it's not quite there, but it's just about there. And definitely like still some kind of Kennedy, almost Eisenhower vibes of like, got to have the properly trimmed haircut and, uh, you know, be at least a little bit proper, but getting close to there. And it's a culture in transition. And I think it's pretty fascinating and present pretty cool in that regard. Brian, did you have any good things or not so good things or interesting things that we haven't talked about yet? I thought this movie was fun. You know, I'll throw a rating on it here soon, but it delivers what it promises. There's parties on a beach. Right. That's what it is. What about some things you maybe didn't like as much, Dan? Well, you can't deny that it just has a cheap feel to it just all around. These aren't high production values, probably epitomized by the rear projection surfing effect. But in general, you can tell this was made pretty quickly. Right. And they're just all kind of interchangeable. I'd say the harshest criticism you could love at this is that it's in some ways forgettable or or just it's indistinct. Yeah. Like you remember the feeling, you remember the vibe, but as far as what happened in a specific movie, they might as well be Robert one through five. (laughs) Very disposable indeed. I also think every single one of these movies is about a hundred minutes and should have been like 75 minutes. Like every single one, by the time we get to minute 80 and the story hasn't wrapped yet, I'm like checking my watch ready for Dee Dee and Frankie to kiss and make up and to hear one last surf rock jam. But I think in general, I, I would shave off the time of all of them before we get to our, is it good? Let me give you, I have two proposed rewrites of this movie. Um, of varying levels of amount that you would have to rewrite them to get them into something that I would enjoy more. These are usually good, so let's hear it. So my simpler rewrite, just get rid of the rats. They're the the things that stand out the most as not fitting in with everything else going on. You can find some other reason for there to be a big pie fight at the end, but cut out the rats. You probably cut out the needed 15 minutes I was asking for or 20 minutes that I was asking for to get to a shorter runtime, just do that. And, and I think this movie is, is more entertaining and uh, watchable. Episode title, Get Rid of the Rats. <laughs> uh, my second and more extreme one, let's go full link later on this, baby. Get rid of the professor. Get rid of everything except teens just partying and introduce some more places. Bring in a pizza joint. Bring in a different surf rock group. 
we don't need any external forces coming in to impact no old people just just the teens hanging out and you can still have your little love triangle going on but uh drop the professor drop the rats make this uh, everybody wants some circa 1963 i think that would be my favorite version of this movie but you know i can at least appreciate some of the the cartoonish fun that that went in here yeah no i think i'd rather have the scary chimp <laughs> all right i think i am ready to rate this movie as am i so brian is beach party 1963 good i will remind listeners that uh, this is where we brian and i each give the movie a goodness rating an eight point scale ranging from very not good that's our one out of eight to our masterpiece rating, 8 out of 8, Tour Day Good. So, Brian, is Beach Party good? Okay, surf rock drum roll. It is good. I'm giving this one a 5 out of 8. It's a pleasant experience. Good to vacation here, but I go home at the end feeling satisfied, ready to return in perhaps a year. I don't know if I would marathon six in a row, (laughs) but I commend you for really staking your claim on the sand. What about you, Dan? When I actually finished watching it, I was feeling pretty down about it because the stuff I really like happens in the first half hour. The, The promise of the premise that I was really vibing with happens in the first half hour, first 45 minutes before we get a lot of focus on the actual story at hand. I I did watch it a second time to make these notes in addition to watching all of the other movies that I mentioned in the series. I had trouble landing on a number. I too am going to give it a good, though. I I think it's kind of iconic, fun, captures a very specific age, a very specific vibe, a kind of cheesy, throwaway, surf rock fun to it. You know watchable but disposable and like you said you you move on with your life after you've seen these movies or if you're me you go and watch four of the sequels yeah maybe despite some of my gushing early on and some of the fact that the amount of time i sunk into it i'm gonna land in the same place as you so two goods from the goods hosts and brian i think that brings us to our preview for next week what are we going to be watching Yes, so I was waffling up until almost this very moment because on the one hand, I thought I I might pitch a 60s film that also had a pie fight, uh, you know, just kind of campy vibes, but I want to work in something different. And so to change things up a little bit, I want to assign the Paul Thomas Anderson film Boogie Nights. Oh, man. It is kind of a drama, I guess you could say. It it has an interesting mix of genre elements uh, set against the backdrop of the era of 1970s porn chic when it suddenly became kind of socially acceptable and almost fashionable to discuss erotic film in artistic terms. This has been on my to-watch list for years. I'm, I'm excited to have a chance to watch it. I haven't seen this one. I've seen one P.T. Anderson movie, but I'm looking forward to watching this and talking with you about it next week. That's right. Circus month is over. No more P.T. Barnum. On to P.T. Anderson. (laughs) So we do hope you enjoyed yourselves listening 
to our in-depth discussion of beach parties galore and that you join us again next week too now that you've heard from us listeners we want to hear from you email us a review of beach party or any film we've previously discussed on the goods and each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast if we pick your review we will send you a five dollar amazon gift card enough for a free movie rental so send us your review to the goods film podcast at gmail.com that's the goods film podcast at gmail.com i'm looking forward to starting this tradition brian sounds like fun all right catch you on the flip side guys adios Adios.